Hi, you're listening to Spotlight on Broadway Radio. I'm your host, Jenna Tessa Fox. With us today is Elizabeth A. Davis, currently appearing in Classic Stage Company's production of Bertolt Brecht's The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. The play is a parable about Hitler's rise to power, relocated to Chicago's crime scene. Directed by John Doyle, the production uses an ensemble to depict various factions involved in bringing a mobster to power, making a cast of eight into all of Chicago's underworld. One of those eight is Elizabeth A. Davis, who earned a Tony nomination for her performance in Once on Broadway and a Drama Desk nomination for her performance in Allegro, also at CSC, and also directed by John Doyle. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, let's start with, how did you get this part? What was the process like? (laughs) There are many reasons that I love John Doyle, uh, but one of the reasons is that uh, he loves to work with people he's worked with before. And um, I think very much in keeping with um, his Scott identity and and the the way that he came up making theater, he he works with an ensemble mindset. Uh, There is an aesthetic shorthand with people that you know and know you. And so... Uh, it, it wasn't a, a direct offer. I wasn't expecting it. It came out of the clear blue sky. And uh, I obviously said yes. Uh, we had a short phone call and I was like, John, is there any violin playing? And he was like, no, no, of course, darling, it's a play. So uh, we we jumped in and uh, it, it came like a, like a beautiful, well-timed gift. Wonderful. So uh, you, this was an offer, not, not an audition. Yes, yes, that that's right. And because John and I, uh, per your um, introduction, John and I have worked together before in Allegro, and you know, I work. Gosh, um, one of the things I said to him in the rehearsal process is, when are you going to write your memoirs? Because the way that John works is is just a, it's a masterclass every day. Rehearsal is a masterclass. There's things that I wish I was writing down, but I, you know, I don't want to break the flow of, of the rehearsal. Uh, I do think that he is just one of the best we have uh, working. And so uh, whenever you click, you know, when your aesthetics are similar and uh, it just makes the process easier. So I think, you know, at least half the cast John has worked with before he's worked with Raul before, obviously in company and, I think other things. Uh, he's worked with Georgia Bood before. Uh, so, and, and Tom, and yeah, so it's just a very warm room of, of shorthanded understanding of, um, of what is essential. You know, John says that he's not a minimalist, he's an essentialist. And mm-hmm. the process of coming to the essential gesture or the, the essential uh, moment uh, is, is a very difficult process. You know, I, I think we all experience this in, in whatever area our, our field of expertise is. It, it's a lot of work to be simple. And the older uh, I, I get, uh, I, I find that very true that, you know, while when I talked about this too, how, you know, the camera demands you do next to nothing. And, uh, so I think that there's such beauty in being able to be simple, to not push, to take hubris out of the work, to uh, it, it's truly an offering. And I think John's work, uh, how he works with an ensemble, really 
asks of the actor to leave their ego at the door and to simply show up and say, how can I serve the piece? Uh, and so it's been a beautiful process. <laughs> I, I won't go on, but um, oh, please, the eight yes. of us, yeah, the eight of us are just extremely thankful. Yeah, what has the rehearsal process been like? I mean, I, I love the idea of it's not minimalism, it's essentialism. How do you determine what is essential in a play like this? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, I don't want to speak too much about how the sausage is made um, per respect for John, but I, I don't think at all he would mind me talking about that uh, repetition is a huge part of the way that he works. And one of my favorite methodologies from graduate school that I've taken into all of my work is uh, Grotowski. I went to Italy and studied uh, with uh, one one person removed from Grotowski. And something major about that methodology is repetition in saying that often we're creating forms when we're being cerebral and when we get out of our own way and we're simply working from instinct and we're exhausted of our own attempts at trying to do the thing, then that's when something real happens. So John has been able to get to that in his approach of saying, we're just going to do it over and over and over. And in so doing, we you know, exhaust ourselves, if you will, of our our ideas of what it should be, and then the essence somehow appears. So he, and that takes a while for him to, you know, for uh, for him to be able to see that and say, okay, now that you guys are being essential, I can now see what the essential gesture of the scene is, or what the essential prop is or oh we don't need that costume piece anymore because I understand the story. So there's a cleanliness to the way that he works. Um and listen, I I don't know if I should admit this but I will. Uh I was not able to get through the piece unedited. I just was like, "Oh my gosh, this is such dense material. I'm lost. I don't know who all these characters are." Um it's a it's a very tricky piece to navigate on the page. So this the clarity with which I think the story is presented and, and how we're able to communicate an exorbitant amount of information and, and plot laying with clarity is is testi- testimony to the process speaking of. Um it, he's just able to say with a hat or with a folder, uh, this is what you're to follow and this is how you're going to make it through to the end to get the powerful punch that I think the show delivers. Great. And the ensemble includes several characters that Brecht wrote for men to play. Uh, What went into deciding which of these roles would be played by women? Look, gosh, John is also uh, a champion for for women, for people of color. Um, and so he worked really hard to say, uh, we're not going to have any racial redundancies in this show. Uh, I'm the only white woman. There is only one African-American woman, one African-American man. Raul is um, Cuban. Uh, my friend Georgia Boot is Lebanese. So... Uh, George, I'm sorry, John was insistent that um, the cast reflected America. 
he uh, he has three women and five men, and he, I know that he worked very hard to try to get a gender parity, but you know the whole the whole play demands men. So to enable the three women uh, to be able to show up was a gift in and of itself. And yes, I play two men, um, one of which was a historical character in the Third Reich that when he killed people, he collected their hats, a mm. very strange, sick habit. Um, and and so the only reason that I get to be in the show is because John decided, well, why can't that be a woman? And it's been this enormous gift of saying, um, what would bring a woman to this serial killing behavior? You know, what is the what is the wound or what is the circumstantial scenario that would bring her to such? So uh, I have enormous freedom and uh, I bought a book called Lady Killers <laughs> Ooh. about uh, female serial killers and just a variety of, you know, psychotic breaks or, you know, family wounds that brought women to just killing large amounts of people. So, you know, that's been a nice little walk in the park, deep dive. Not at all. Um, <laughs> but uh, the process of being cast in this role was just simply, again, John saying, I have a commitment to the American theater and uh, we're going to do it this way. Also, the actor character that I play is also a man in the original script. Um, but what does it mean that we have this Hitler character coming to a woman to learn how to speak and move, and why not? So your primary role is uh, Geary, based on Hermann Goring. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've never heard of Goring collecting hats. Was that the uh, character who who uh, collected the hats of people he killed? Or My understanding, yes. Um, wow, I have never heard that. And <laughs> you're going to have to forgive my ignorance, Um uh, if if that is indeed a, a fallacy, so please don't take me to the bank on that. But no, um, no, not I at all. Cer- yeah, I certainly know that. Uh, we'll just say this. How about this? We'll just say Brecht has given us this uh, little Easter egg sure. for this character. And um, yeah, what is that? I I don't know. I mean, it. I imagine that that this person, perhaps in the same way that a person would collect stamps or figurines uh when you go down the path of of a genocide you know perhaps you have to somehow trick your brain into making a game out of it so you're able to push your conscience down far enough that you can continue doing what you're doing um it's very disturbing i you know that's all i can think of uh i I know in playing it i just always go to the Carl Jungian um, archetypal thoughts of, well, is this a femme fatale or no, this is probably a wounded child. And Mm. this is a wounded child woman who looks to Arturo Ui as, you know, her father figure. And so she'll do anything for him. She wants, you know, he wants hats, great. I, who knows, you know, um, but it's certainly been a very interesting character. How do you make each of your roles in the play distinct? I noticed gum chewing for uh, for Geary. 
Were there other yeah. ticks that you added in to make sure, not just for the audience, but since there's no costume change, uh, you're playing all of these different roles wearing largely the same clothing. Uh, how do you make sure that they're distinct for the audience and for you internally? You're right. Gum chewing was a big thing for me. That that was a day I really dropped in to this person. Uh, I think when a person is running out and engaged in and murder, that there is a, a, a physical adrenaline explosion, I would imagine. Uh, and so I started experimenting with this person must have an exorbitant amount of pent-up uh, energy and just constant adrenaline pumping through her body. So I thought, how do I demonstrate that without looking like a, a crazy person on stage? And I think that um, there's there's a lot of fidget fidgeting that happens, but I think that gum chewing is uh, the most uh, sane way to to let that to let that energy out. So so that's why I it, it's my small representation of just an enormous amount of rage boiling through this woman's blood. Um, and when I go from the actor, which is uh, just one of my favorite scenes I've ever done in any, in any production, um, from the, the actor who has the British accent <clears throat> and has the Roman, uh, sheet over her shoulder to indicate that she is such, yeah. there's a moment where I take the sheet off and then pop a new piece of gum in my mouth. And that's one of my favorite moments where I get to really, you know, in pure theater, just transform from one thing to the next with nothing more than a piece of gum. And it feels really fulfilling as an actor. Which leads me right into my next question. What is your favorite moment in the show, uh, apart <laughs> from taking off the sheet and popping in the gum? I'm hesitating because I find enjoyment in doing things in the show that represent horrible acts. And the top of act two is the trial scene where I'm in essence pouring gasoline down a person's throat mm -hmm. where I'm singeing a woman's eyes with gasoline, which is just, just the most horrible thing. Um, I, I know that, day that we found that in rehearsal, I was sick to my stomach because there's a joy in, in being able to play on stage, but knowing what it represents is so disturbing that there's this just, uh, this cauldron of emotions that it's just completely conflicted. So I hesitate to say the top of act two in the trial scene but I think I have to answer that because mm, I think I have to say that, the top of Act 2, the trial scene. And obviously this play is, uh, there are quite a few moments that take the show out of the 1930s milieu and bring it into the present era. I don't want to spoil too much for audiences by describing right. what those moments are. But do you feel that this play is particularly timely now? And what went into deciding how to make that timeliness uh, part mm -hmm. of the text or subtext? Oh, gosh. Uh, 
John has had to put um, a placard in the lobby that says the text has not been changed (laughs) because there are so many things that are said in this piece that feel as if it was written for today that people are just not going to believe that it wasn't changed. Um, So, you know, there's a reason that John chose this piece and it's the only piece that classic stage is doing the entire fall season um, because he believes that that theater must speak to the moment. And this is an extremely powerful way for that to happen. Uh, yes, I don't want to spoil too much either, but I think when audiences walk into the room and they see this, the set that has been chosen, it will immediately invoke the present. And I also think that a costume piece or two of Raoul's will immediately place people in the present. Um, one of my lines, however, in the trial scene is you jury fixer paid by Moscow gold. And I just can't believe it. <laughs> that line was, I sort of assumed that line was slightly tweaked. That wasn't at no, all. Oh my gosh. At all. Not at all was it tweaked. And in the first scene, um, or maybe it's second scene, but it, it uh, the way that, uh, we flow in and out of scene changes ma- makes it seem like the first scene, but I guess second scene. Uh, Raul has a line where he says, buy me a judge. And that seems to get a reaction every night. There's just, uh, yeah, yeah. We would come in daily with news headlines that uh, or or literally transcript text from you know X Y Z whoever it may be on either side of the aisle at any time in this insanity in our country, but they they just it was as if we were reading the play out loud, and yeah, yeah, it's extremely timely. Is <laughs> I guess my short answer to a long rambling explanation, but and. The show is running through December 22nd. What are what are you working on next? What is the next project for you? Mm. Uh, that is that is to be determined and not announced yet. However, ah. uh, I I do have a piece that I uh, we had a off Broadway development this summer at the uh, the Davenport Theater. It's a piece called My Name's Not Indian Joe, and I've written the piece, and we are. Uh, headed back into the remount of the off-Broadway production. Um, it, it It's the most, at this point in my career, it is the most personal, and it, it, I feel compelled on every level to make sure that this story is put in front of New York audiences. It's about a Native American man who lived on the streets in Waco, Texas, and um, I think it confronts head-on a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now in this country as well, as well of racism, of socioeconomic prejudice, um, of entering into relationship with people that we have nothing in common with. But when we do, we discover our similarities are so much greater than our differences. So uh, this is a project that has my entire whole heart and energy. Um, so that's what I'll be doing. People can visit IndianJoeMusical.com. 
if they want to know more information. And that is my short answer as well. <laughs> and that sounds like quite a refreshing break after the resistible rise of Arturo Louis. So, uh, well, Elizabeth- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I- it's it's just such a joy to be a part of this production that it, I, I hate to say that it will be a break, but um, it will be a continuation of things that I love. We'll just say that. Very good. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time this morning and for taking the time to talk and share your insights and for the fantastic performance in the show. And thank I look forward much. to seeing uh, seeing the next one. Thank you.